Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. In this episode, I'm talking and taking Brad Pitt's 2011 film, Moneyball, deep over the right field fence of total fandom and filmic appreciation, including many diversions off the pesky pole of cinematic minutiae. And you Boston Red Sox fans out there can join me in knowing what the hell I'm talking about there. I want to inform and entertain you. You want to stay in the show. This is the show. So take the ticket, enjoy the ride as we get into Moneyball, which is one of my very favorite films. And in reconsidering it for this episode, I'm going to go so far as to say it's a perfect film. It's honestly and entertainingly and movingly totally unique to itself. It accomplishes exactly what it sets out to try and do. And like its subject matter, it breaks the conventional wisdom of sports movies, in quotes, and thus arrives at something truly special. So let's check out Moneyball. As ever, a big thank you to the artist known as Canyon Crows for allowing me to use his brilliantly cinematic music right here. This is from the album Hauntology. Give him a follow on Instagram. It's at Canyon underscore Crows. And you can check out his incredible music on Spotify. So thank you once again for not suing me. Now, as to the background of Moneyball, the film... I posted a cryptic screenshot of a portion of the screenplay. And I said, this is what I'm doing next on the pod. And really nobody had any idea what I was talking about. I think two people, (laughs) two people uh, were on board with uh, what I was talking about. So maybe this is not a widely beloved film in the manner that I consider it to be. And if not, if you haven't seen it, uh, stop what you're doing. Stop listening to the podcast go right home, watch the film, and then re-pick up the podcast or listen to the podcast first and maybe I will inspire you to see the film. Now, the film is based on the nonfiction writer Michael Lewis's book of the same name. And if you are a fan of Michael Lewis as I am, I think he's one of the greatest nonfiction writers around today. He's written famous books like The Big Short, which was also turned into... mm, kind of a sketchily okay film. Um, He wrote Liar's Poker in 1989. That might be one of his first books. That's a brilliant, hilarious book about his experience as a bond trader on Wall Street in the mid-80s. He also wrote The Blind Side, which was also turned into a movie, which is about National Football League player Michael Ower and his incredible uh, life story. Uh, So, you know, Michael Lewis writes these very cinematic books that are about, I don't want to say arcane subjects, but he finds unique ways in to talk about very established things. In this case, the world of baseball viewed through the changes that were happening in the game really in the late 90s, early 2000s 
when the sabermetric approach, by which I mean for non-sports fans out there, a very detailed mathematical analysis of the types of statistics that can tell informed people which players actually accomplish the goal of scoring the most runs, which then allows your team to win the most games and advance through the regular and the postseason and ideally win the World Series. And this this approach to baseball was, was something that has its roots going back to you know, the, the early 80s, Bill James is a writer who was just a baseball obsessive who, as they say in this film, was working as a security guard at a pork and beans plant. And in his spare time, taking these arcane baseball statistics, why can I say statistics? Taking these baseball statistics apart in terms of the commonly accepted and used statistics and kind of showing that they don't really tell you what you would need to know if you really were interested in performance on the baseball field. Now I get it. If you're not a baseball fan, if you're not a sports fan, maybe this subject already as I'm describing it to you doesn't sound that exciting and interesting, but I promise you that it is, especially as displayed in this film. The writer Rafer Guzman of Newsday had a little blurb here about Moneyball in his review that I thought was particularly on point. He says, quote, the film reveals deep affection for America's pastime while also acknowledging its cold bottom line realities. That's not the shower of sparks magic you normally see in a baseball movie, but a magic all its own. And that's really the best quick synopsis I could say of what's really unique and amazing about this film. And I'm going to quote from a uh, article that appeared on Looper by Lisa Lehman in just February of 2023. It's a very good kind of general synopsis of, of the making of Moneyball, and it links to a bunch of interviews which are interesting. And I'm going to put a link to that in this episode guide because I definitely got a lot out of reading it. And also there's a great Hollywood Reporter article uh, about the making of Moneyball from back when the film came out, which is in December of 2011. That's by Alex Ben Block, and I'm also going to put a link to that. Those are two good sort of sources about some of what's interesting about the making of the movie. And what's interesting about it is it had a very serpentine route to the big screen, including Sony, the studio at the time, pulling the plug on the film 96 hours before cameras were set to roll in the field after a protracted period of development, which stretched back, I think, to 2004, which is crazy. Um, Moneyball came out in 2003. The rights were snapped up by a film producer in 2004. And here we are in 2011 or 2010, probably, 96 hours before filming was scheduled to begin, they pulled the plug. And the reason they pulled the plug was the film as developed went through a couple directors. I believe the second director attached through most of this period where it was a go project with Brad Pitt attached, which of course certainly helped things and is probably the only reason it, it survived development hell, as they call it was both because of Pitt's commitment to the material and Amy Pascal's commitment to finding a way to bring the film 
to fruition. She was the executive at Sony at the time. Now, the second attached director was Steven Soderbergh. As you know, I'm a huge Soderbergh fan. And he had a very interesting take on the film, which I think would have been fascinating to see. Um, but it was a rewrite, I guess, that he, Steven Soderbergh, did of the Steven Zalian screenplay, which caused the studio to get cold feet. This is at least according to the reporting. And apparently Soderbergh had this really kind of meta approach where he was going to use real baseball players and real people who had been involved in the story and interview them and then intersperse those uh, interviews throughout the fictional narrative aspect of his film. And there's a variety of article at the time when the plug was pulled. It said, quote, while Soderbergh is confident his take will work visually, Columbia Brass had doubts on a film that costs north of $50 million. That is reasonable for a studio-funded picture that includes the discounted salary of a global star like Brad Pitt, but baseball films traditionally don't fare well on the global playing field. So apparently the studio at the time thought that in a film that was going to cost about $50 million, this kind of arty meta approach that Soderbergh was was talking about using uh, was, was too risky. Now, you could also make an argument, and I'm sure Soderbergh would have made the argument, that including colorful known personalities like Lenny Dykstra, Daryl Strawberry, David Justice, as well as people who are fictionalized in the film, like Scott Hatterberg, David Justice, for an example, that maybe that would have expanded the possible reach of a film like this that was admittedly going to be not a difficult sell, but it's a baseball movie that really wasn't in any of its conceptions a baseball movie in quotes. So for $50 million, the studio got nervous. They pulled the plug, and it took some restructuring, rejiggering, and a new director to come in and eventually lower the budget. And I think Brad and some other actors had to defer or cut their salaries, get, this, get the budget down a bit. And they brought in the director, Bennett Miller, who is kind of fascinating. He's made only four, well, he's actually only made three feature films since 2005. His first feature film was Capote, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, who also co-stars in Moneyball. He made Moneyball in 2011, and he made Foxcatcher uh, in 2014. Foxcatcher is the Steve Carell starring take on the DuPont air slash wrestling entrepreneur. Very dark film uh, that's worth seeing, but hard to watch in places. And I first became aware of Bennett Miller because I was a big fan of his documentary, The Cruise, which came out in 1998. This is a really great documentary about uh, Timothy Speed Levitch who was, and I think still is, uh, a, a um, what do you call him? He's like the person, if you took a double-decker bus tour of all the general tourist sites of New York City, he's your tour guide. That's what he is. I could never remember that. 
but he's so much more than a tour guide. He's this really kind of fascinatingly slightly lost character. And Miller really captures in this documentary um, both the, the 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 genius and the and the possible uh, madness of the person, and and has a really clever eye for the dry, surprising moment that occurs during uh, these these tours. So he's not a prolific filmmaker, and I think I read a couple things where he said it's so all encompassing to make a film that when he finishes one, he probably thinks for a couple of years, like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and then, you know, five or six years pass and then someone dangles the opportunity like, hey, would you be interested in possibly taking over this film? It's a baseball film, stars Brad Pitt uh, and Jonah Hill. It's about the Oakland A's and their general manager, Billy Bean, who changed his approach to putting together a team using arcane statistics and newly developed sabermetrics and challenged the conventional wisdom of the baseball establishment and was excoriated as much as he succeeded. You'd have to be a certain type of, of, of director to hear that pitch and go, yeah, let me step into that. And we can thank the brilliant actor, Catherine Keener, apparently for Bennett Miller coming aboard as director because she had reached out to Brad Pitt and said, hey, what about Bennett Miller? And put his name in contention, and they met with him, um, and he had uh, a vision for how to do it. And I think we're very thankful that he did. I think Soderbergh's approach, we'll never know, but it would have been certainly interesting uh, to see sort of that meta, you know, that kind of meta narrative approach, um, seeing this film and how well it, um, it plays out as a straight piece of narrative filmmaking. I think it would, the spell might've been broken had we stopped down to hear from albeit colorful characters like Lenny Dykstra or Daryl Strawberry, both of whom feature very prominently in the story of Billy Bean as told by Michael Lewis in his book Moneyball, because those were contemporaries of Billy Bean, who was a player. And one of the brilliant and fascinating aspects of, of the book, it gets into it much more in the book. The movie alludes to it, and I think it, the movie does a very good job of alluding to it, but the book is much more in-depth in terms of Billy Bean was a high school baseball phenom who had received a full scholarship to Stanford University I believe to play football, to be the quarterback at Stanford, but was also approached by the New York Mets who wanted to sign him and told him and his parents, he's a once in a long time prospect. He has what they call all five tools. He could run, he can throw, he can hit, he can hit for power, um, on and on. So he, he had this complete package, or should we say he presented he looked like this complete package. And one of the fascinating things that the book gets into and the movie gets into is that he really wasn't. And yes, he looked the part. And there's a bunch of brilliant scenes in the film where these old school baseball scouts are judging prospects and saying bizarre things like he's got a good face, uh, strong jaw, all of these other kinds of, you know, um, 
brilliantly off topic measurements that old school baseball people used and some probably still use in judging prospects. And so that's kind of an interesting part of this whole story is that the inner turmoil of Billy Bean, the person, is in part because the thinking of these people allowed him to make this mistake in a way in his own life because they were offering him something you couldn't really turn down, which was an amount of mo- amount of money in, you know, the the early eighties that was so significant for an eighteen year old that how could you not sign up to be the future center fielder for the New York Mets um, <laughs> when his journey through the minor leagues and the major leagues was just one frustration after another of really not having the ability, not having the head as they think how it comes across. You hear a lot in sports, you know, somebody could have a million dollar arm, but a 10 cent head. And I think Billy Bean's temperament seems to be the thing that most stepped in the way of his dreams. So a lot of the subtext of the film is about him not wanting to perpetuate a system that caused him so much uh, turmoil and to kind of derail himself for the number of years that he did. So his, his mission, such as it is, simplified in the film because if you get into the book Moneyball, you realize that this involvement with these advanced types of statistics was not created by Billy Bean uh, or Bill James for that matter, but it had many proponents and adherents. And indeed, Sandy Alderson, who was the then general manager of the Oakland A's, was already toying and adopting some of these things in putting together his teams when he allowed Billy Bean to cease being an Oakland A's player and actually become a scout, which is what he did. And it was really Sandy Alderson, who's kind of glancingly, if any, if at all mentioned in the film, you know, really bears some, uh, some applause for kind of, kind of doing these things. And then of course the Red Sox would go on to win uh, the world series in 2004 using these mechanism and they attempted to hire Billy Bean to be their general manager, which he, which he turns down in the film. So that's a little bit of the sort of baseball background. Um, but what I think works so well is that this is not a baseball film in quotes, even though the baseball scenes are done very, very well. In fact, one of the real strengths here to me is the way in which this film, ironically, blends real footage of real things that occurred during this baseball season in question with reshot fictionalized versions of those very same things, sometimes cut into each other in the same sequence. So you'll have a baseball player playing David Justice running into the corner and falling intercut with actual footage of the actual David's, David Justice when he was in Oakland day running into the corner and falling. And it's very seamlessly done, but it's also not hidden. It's done in a way where you kind of know that it's happening. And some of the real artful filmmaking aspects of Moneyball to me are the way this feature, uh, this feature film uses and incorporates broadcast television footage at kind of an arm's length in an interesting way. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Now, when Soderbergh was going to roll cameras 96 hours before 
or I should say 96 hours after the, the plug was pulled, the role of Peter Brand was not played by Jonah Hill as it is in the film. It was originally supposed to be the comedian Dimitri Martin, who, as they say, was having a moment around the time that this film was being put together. And so I don't know how it, how it occurred that he dropped out. Maybe it was a, the director wanted a different, different type of actor. But Jonah Hill at that point also, this was the first time he'd ever really been in a dramatic film. You know, he was, had this litany of kind of iconic teen comedies of, of the era underneath his belt. But he hadn't been in a film like this before. And I think he is one of the great joys of the film. We'll play some of his stuff later. So Brad Pitt's attachment to the film is interesting too. And if I could go out on a bit of a limb here, I will. So I want to play a little bit of why he was interested in the film in the first place. This is a bit of him talking about, as many actors of his era will talk about, right? All the films that we talk about here, the films of the 70s, I mean, these are the films that this generation of actors all hold in as much esteem as we all hold those films in esteem. And I think one of the strengths of this film is that it really does play out like a 70s style film, but it looks like a film of its contemporary era. But here's Brad talking a little bit about that aspect of the film feeling a bit 70s. It, it, we started there? It took a bit of time. <laughs> you know, I mean, we had, it's unconventional material. It's it's, it's it's got science and, and sabermetrics, economics at its forefront, and yeah. uh, it took a, it took a while to figure it out. And well, why did you hang on? I mean, when they all even changing directors, you stayed in there. I, I I couldn't let it go. I just couldn't let this book go. I got really obsessed. I'm a big Michael Lewis fan to begin with, and and uh, this book. The I mean, there's several reasons. There's the 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 acting side, what I saw in the character, and. Like one of our first conversations about the film was uh, uh, it felt like a 70s film. It could feel like a, a 70s language type mm-hmm. of film that, it, it, you know, when I started acting films, I was taught to, that we had to have a big epiphany, a character arc. And yeah. I, I, through the years, I found that to be bullshit, I, yeah. <laughs> that we don't change that much. Yeah. And what I love and what one of our first conversations was uh, these 70s films where the beast at the beginning of the movie is the same beast at the end of the movie. And they don't really change. They, they may evolve a little bit or pick something up, but, but it's a world around them that changes their perspective yeah. of the world around them. That's a pretty cool quote. And also, let's throw back a moment to, do you remember a moment in American culture where you could have a movie star of the caliber of Brad Pitt sitting for an hour-long interview about a movie like Moneyball? You know, a heady, writerly film. Um, it's amazing to me to watch things like this now and just think how far away from this we are. It just doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) It's just kind of crazy, right? It's like, it's gone. And it's so useful to be able to see these people talk through it in real time, in great length, what sort of brought them to the film. Here's another little snippet of Brad talking uh, to Terry Gross on Fresh Air about uh, why he was interested in the film. Well, reasons. I, I first picked up the book by Michael Lewis, and 
was taken with these guys who, out of necessity, had to challenge conventional wisdom of, of their, their industry. The, I never looked at sports from the economic standpoint, and they are a team. We deal with the Oakland A's in 2002, and they are a team who had a payroll of $38 million to platoon a team, and they're playing against teams that have $120 million with another $100 million in reserves. And there is, there is no way to have an equal fight. And so what these guys had to do was re-question baseball, baseball knowledge. They had to take everything apart and start over again. And that's also fascinating because, again, I'm trying to get to the point of like, it's, it's not, um, it's hard to even cite baseball movies because I think the great ones, is there a great one beyond Bull Durham? Probably not. Um, Eight Men Out is a great movie. Bull Durham is a great movie. The Natural, eh, I'm not going to go there on The Natural. I don't think it's great. Those, I mean, really Bull Durham is the only one I can think of that really crossed over and became less a movie about the romance of baseball, although it certainly is that. And became, you know, a romantic comedy first and foremost with these two incredible stars and Kevin Costner and Susan Sarandon. It's it's not really a baseball movie to me. It's a romantic comedy. It's it's a really well-written example of filmmaking of its time. But the baseball stuff is not realistically portrayed per se, other than maybe some of the psychological hangups that the players may have. But Moneyball is really the most truthful to the full picture of what baseball is and can be. It uses it more as a lens rather than as the Petri dish the lens is focused on, if that analogy makes any kind of sense. So, and interestingly here, I want to talk about Brad in this film for a second. I mean, here's my hot take. I think this is Brad Pitt's finest film performance, hands down. Because he has a personal attachment here that I think goes beyond sort of his interest in things he didn't think he was interested in, as you heard him say there briefly to Terry Gross, you know, that he never thought of baseball from an economic perspective. But I think there's something else interesting in the character for Brad, whether maybe Brad realizes it or not. I'm going to analyze Brad here. So Brad, if you're listening, apologies. You know, so Billy Bean looked a certain way to baseball scouts. Good face. Brad Pitt certainly looked and looks a certain way to humanity. And of course, we know enough to know that that's not the reality inside, that the insides don't always match the outsides and vice versa. Now, having gone pretty deep recently on Paul Newman's life and work, I think there's a lot of interesting parallels between the career of Brad Pitt and the career of Paul Newman. And I think if all goes as it's been going lately for Brad, I think Brad Pitt's late career work, mid and late career work, is going to be the best acting work of his life. Much like Paul Newman. You know, Paul Newman, after the age of 60, turned in these incredible performances in films 
that showed a depth of understanding about the art form of acting and about film acting in particular that in some cases was at odds with the reality of his personal life, but was also an answer to his experience as a young actor, as a young commodity, as a young piece of meat, as someone whose looks were so lionized and so swooned over that he would feel in some roles like he had to literally cover up his eyes with the sunglasses and the color of money, the baby blues. And not to, you know, put too much oppressive weight on the trials and tribulations of being beautiful. (laughs) Uh, But I think it's safe to say you can experience this feeling of, of wanting to prove to people that you're more than just a pretty face. And I think Brad Pitt is more than just a pretty face, although he is that, just like Paul Newman was that. And in many ways, the ways in which Billy Bean was held up to be this exemplar ideal of something, in his case, a baseball player, because he looked at the part. In the same way, Brad Pitt is held up to be something that he himself knows he's probably not internally, right? He's had the struggles and problems that anyone has had in growing up, except his his process had to happen in public. So all the things, all the messy bits of learning the ropes of life, learning what your personal demons are, struggling with them, falling prey to them, maybe eventually conquering them, These things all happen largely in public for people who choose this this life path of being an actor. And in the case of Paul Newman, fascinatingly, you know, he never really conquered the underlying demon that he seems to have struggled with in his life, which was his alcoholism. Although he knew a great deal about it, spent a lot of time thinking about it, Brad, I believe, has been public about uh, not drinking, getting sober, perhaps. And I think that the work that he's done in the last few years, from Ad Astra to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, reflects that he has a chance to go on to become that late career Newman type of actor who whose performances are the things he becomes most known for rather than his looks. I think he's well on his way to that. And this film, to me, this small film in quotes, you know, it offers him a chance to really act and also to not hide. Um, Because he's pretty much in every single scene of the film. And this Billy Bean character is so fascinatingly Uh, complicated and screwed up that it's really chewy for an actor, but Brad doesn't chew the scenery uh, as much as he very effectively, I think, plums the psychology of this person in a remarkable series of scenes 
where he is really actively listening to people who have various takes on him as an individual in the film. Some people think he's a genius. Some people think he is a moron. <laughs> Some people are at odds with his character for their own selfish reasons. And in each of these scenes, he is displaying a really fascinating ability to be present in the conversation while also sometimes appearing to be observing himself in the conversation. And I may be putting this on the character and the performance because in the book, that's really what Michael Lewis does a great job writing about, which is that one of the flaws that Billy Bean struggled with as a baseball player was he was too inside his own head. And a lot of people have talked about this throughout baseball hilariously that in the book, Lenny Dystra is held up as an example of someone who has exactly the right mindset to succeed in baseball because he's literally never thinking about anything. And if he does something wrong, he's forgotten about it before he gets up at bat the next time. You know, Manny Ramirez on the Red Sox was someone about whom that was said a lot, <laughs> that he's just this character who did colorful and funny things uh, but was so focused on the art of hitting a baseball that he was one of the greatest to ever do it. Manny being Manny was a phrase that encompassed all of that kind of pretty complicated thinking about Manny Ramirez and his attitude towards life and towards baseball. And Billy Bean, his baseball career was marked by uh, an apparent inability to get out of his own way, his anger, his temper. He was in conflict with this image of himself that he kind of always knew wasn't true, but that he felt he had to live up to. And in trying to live up to it, he, of course, thwarted his perhaps natural playing ability that may have been allowed to come to fruition if he'd been handled a little differently as a player by these organizations who just made assumptions about him. And in making assumptions about him, they didn't bother to maybe bring him along a little bit more slowly in a way that would have allowed him to come to terms with his own talent, its limitations, and his mindset. But no one was doing that. It's just throw him in. He's got all the tools. He can do it. And I find a lot of similarities there to someone like Brad Pitt's career and a lot of similarities to, to Paul Newman. And I think Brad and Paul Newman, I think Brad has a real chance at that kind of late career, Newman-esque career. I'm look, and I'm here for it. I'm a huge Brad Pitt fan. And I can't wait to see the types of things that he does next. And I would point to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as further example of this, I don't know if it's post-sobriety Brad or not, because I don't know the specific details, but I know that around that time, he, he sort of publicly credited um, some people in Hollywood for showing him a different path and maybe helping him conquer some of the things that, were, that, were, that he was struggling with as many people do. And he is so amazingly present in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in, in a sly way. That film is a, is a bit of a different, more stylized type of role and performance, but he brings a lot of heart to it. And, you know, as, as does DiCaprio. I mean, I think they're both fantastic in that film. But looking back to 2011 here, this is Brad Pitt's best movie role. And it's worth watching for that. 
And there's some interesting character things uh, that come up there. <laughs> and there's some great moments throughout the entire film. We'll talk a little about the cast too here. So as I said, in addition to really this incredible kind of Brad Pitt performance, the supporting cast is great too. Jonah Hill is fantastic in this too. I mean, this is a great Jonah Hill performance and he has such a great and unique kind of, um, shyness, but he gets just exactly right. The fact that this character, Peter Brandt, who is, who is not a real person, he's based on a person named Paul D. Podesta, who was working with Billy Bean at the Oakland A's at the time. But Paul D. Podesta, I guess, was one of the people who kind of was maybe smart enough to understand that the Hollywoodization of this book would require some certain changes or variants from quote unquote reality. And we'll talk about that as relates to some of the other characters. Uh, But for whatever reason, Paul D. Podesta didn't allow them to use his name. So they created the character of Peter Brand, who the Brad Pitt character spots in one of these baseball meetings and and sort of plucks from uh, plucks from the Cleveland Indians, and um, and and then enrolls him in in this plan that he has to uh, to try to to remake the Oakland A's with some of these with some of these statistically based you know uh, approaches. Now, one of the other great things in the film that I always loved, and I didn't even know that's who this was at the time, but the owner of the Oakland A's at the time was, I guess, a guy named Steve Schott. And it's always been a great part of the film. I watched the film so many times without ever really bothering to look into who this actor was who played Steve Schott. And it turns out he's not an actor at all. And that's probably why he's so great. It's, it's actually the CEO of the game company, the Activision Blizzard CEO, Bobby Kotick, who's been in the news a lot because this Activision Blizzard company and uh, it's just been in the news a bunch for both positive and negative reasons, scandals uh, as a potential acquisition. And Bobby Kotick is the CEO and has such a very specific kind of personality that he He's great in these scenes with Brad Pitt. We'll play a little of Brad sitting down to talk to the owner of his ball club here. How are the guys doing? As a killer. As a killer, it's a tough one to swallow. It's Oh, they played great. You did a oh, great Oh, they played job. their hearts out. They they did they played fantastic and it just didn't fall our way. They'll do better next year. We were close though, weren't we? We were so close. Right there. Almost had it. You got to feel good about that. I feel great about it. it. I feel great about it. Now, he clearly does not feel great about it is the point that Brad's acting is making. But when I play you this scene and you can just hear the audio, that's not apparent. And this is part of what's, I think, great about Brad's performance. In this scene, he is doing what he has to do as a general manager who is talking to the owner of the team, which is display an upbeat positivity even after a heartbreaking 
crushing loss in the playoffs, which he's just one day removed from. And so his words say one thing, but he's conveying another thing with his physicality in this scene. Um, we're not going to do better next year. Why not? Well, you know we're being gutted. We're losing Giambi, Damon, Isringhausen. Done deal. We're in trouble. You'll find new guys. You found Jason. You found Damon. I need more money, Steve. And then here we're getting to the heart of the matter. Here, here's what Brad Pitt as Billy Bean can't contain anymore the facade, the fiction of here I am, the general manager having the post-mortem meeting with my owner. He's he's he he's incapable of not cutting to the chase, which is his need for more money. I need more money. We don't have any I can't more compete money, against a $120 million payroll with $38 million. But we're not going to compete with these teams that have big budgets. We're going to work within the constraints that we have. And you're going to get out and do the best job that you can recruiting new players. We're not going to pay $17 million a year to players. I'm not asking you for tens of 20, $30 million. I'm just asking for a little bit of help. Just get me a little bit closer and I will get you that championship team. I mean, this is why I'm here. This is why you hired me. And I got to ask you, what, what are we doing here? Well, you know, if it's I'm... not to win a championship. I want to win just That's like my that. bar. My bar is here. My bar is to take this team to a championship. Billy, worse. Now, see, in this scene here, I think Brad's doing something amazing, and Bennett Miller, the director, is doing something amazing. And the use of a non-actor in Bobby Kotick is brilliant because Bobby Kotick is real. He really does embody the very experienced, wealthy businessman who is used to dealing with people who are trying to get him to spend more money. And he's holding the line on something that he has an understanding of that probably Billy Bean doesn't have an understanding of outside of, I want more. I want to win. And I can't win if you don't give me the ability to win. And what's fascinating about this scene is as Billy Bean becomes more honest about what he wants, he both becomes more direct with Steve Schott, and he also becomes less articulate. As you as you kind of hear in this scene where he's like, I'm not asking you for some tens of twenties of millions. He kind of loses the ability to put the sentence together. And this is part of what's fascinating about the characterization of Billy Bean in the book and in the movie, which is there's a certain performative aspect to the person. He's performing a role, and it's familiar to those of us who perhaps put a barrier between ourselves and the world of humor or carrying ourselves a certain way in order to feel safe or remain hidden from whatever agenda is ruling our psyche and our person. And I think a lot of this is really contained in Brad Pitt's performance in this film. And if there's a retention of what Soderbergh wanted to do, which is the use of real people in key spots in the film, I think that they did that in a great way uh, without sort of going totally in the manner that maybe Soderbergh wanted to do with, you know, the interviews kind of cut in, which has worked in other films, right? Um, it's worked in, um, what's the... 
what's the isn't it isn't there like a Rob Reiner romantic comedy? Oh, when Harry met Sally, right? Doesn't that have real couples in it? Don't they inter, intercut real couples? But in a comedy, I think you can get away with that. I mean, this is there is comedy to this film, but I think it is important that we don't break the spell here. And now, so so the use of Bobby Kotick is brilliant, and he has just a couple of scenes where his realness works like a magic trick, and it's really worth that. Now, the other great thing is that in this room that we're about to enter, which is the free agency period of the Oakland A's and the scouting department, which is populated with only one or two exceptions by actual former baseball scouts. And again, too, their realness works in a scene opposite Brad Pitt. He looks like a man or a maze, quite frankly. He's got a baseball body. Matty, what do you got? I like Geronimo. Yes. Hey, this guy's an athlete, big, fast, talented. Top of my list. Clean cut, good face. Yeah, good. You hear the good face, which is a brilliant actual scouting term that's bandied about. Five tools guy. Good looking ball player. Can he hit? Hey, he's got a beautiful swing, right, Barry? The ball explodes off his back. He throws the club head at the ball, and when he connects, it he drives it. It pops off the bat. You can hear it all over the ballpark. A lot of pop coming off the bat. And if he's a good hitter, why doesn't he hit good? He is a good hitter. Minor leaguer. He'll be, he'll be ready. Yeah, so he's going to be a good hitter when we put him up against big league guards. Could be a great hitter. I don't think so. This kid this needs some at-bats. You give him 400 at-bats, he's going to get better. He can play. He's hit everywhere along the line. One of our guys. So this is just more great use of real people with a couple actors interspersed here. And and some of the, one of the key scouts who is played by an actor named Ken Medlock, who was a character actor, is a character actor, but he also was a baseball player and worked as a coach, I think in the minor leagues. He's playing Grady Fuson, who is the key antagonist amongst the old school baseball people populating the scout room. And he reads like an actor, but he comes from the world of baseball. And to hear, I think Bennett Miller tell it when he met with Ken Madlock and asked him what he thought of what Billy Bean was doing. He, he, Ken Madlock's personal opinion was like, he's ruining the game, which is exactly what these guys kind of believe in the scouting room. So all the scout scenes are so great. They're just, they're funny. Um, and they have to embody the, this, this thing that Michael Lewis brilliantly gets into in the book, which is the inefficiency of the way baseball is set up. And many people comment on this in the book that baseball is not a, or was not at the time, a top-down managed business in the sense that the supposedly smartest people. <laughs> now, granted, just because you have billions of dollars and own a sports team doesn't mean you're the smartest person in the room. But because it's sports, baseball particularly has had this kind of culture of, hey, we know the game and we played the game. And there are things we know about the game that you'll never know. You bean counters, you stat heads, you sabermetricians. That's bullshit. You're not going to ever win baseball games on numbers alone. There's a, a beating heart and a romance and a pulse and a, and, a, and a livelihood 
to being a ball player, to playing in a game, and your numbers don't tell the whole story. And it's not so much that there's not truth in that take as much as it is the blinders that those people traditionally had towards real analysis of things, which in many cases proved mathematically that the exact opposite of what was thought to be true about the game of baseball was actually true. Now, this is swept through most all sports at this point, and it has changed everything from what we thought we knew about how to hit a golf ball or a tennis ball to football, to basketball, to baseball. All all major sports have been transformed by the ability to apply sophisticated understanding of statistical analysis to the games. Yet what the film gets so right is that it is romance. It is storytelling and drama. It's good guys and bad guys. It's, it's villains and heroes. And it's one of the only places in entertainment where you don't know the outcome. So even if, you've seen a, even if you're sitting in a film and you haven't seen the film before, you probably know how it's going to turn out in general terms because this big movie star stars in it it's part of a franchise you've seen the other four uh, franchise aspects of but sports still is one of the few places where we don't know what's going to happen and as such even in a business like television where there is so much change going on and viewership is declining in so many different places and for so many different reasons You know, live sports is one of the few things that broadcast television can count on and rely on because people watch these things by and large because of their fandom, yes, but also because you can have these moments of incredible drama and they are drama. It's it's drama. It's just like a play, right? It's Shakespeare could have written some of the great things that, are, that happen in some of the great baseball games or sporting contests. You know, Tom Brady leading the uh, Patriots back against the Atlanta Falcons down 28-3 with, you know, three minutes to play in the fourth quarter. I mean, if you wrote that as a drama, no one would believe it. And the thing is, on the field of sports, things like that can happen, albeit infrequently, in a manner that is so all-consuming for fans and non-fans alike that it transcends the sport. And Moneyball as a film manages to do that. It manages to never lose sight of that, even as the whole film is about kind of the unromantic reimagining of the game as a series of mathematical equations, which can be looked at in such a manner to influence the outcome of the game. And I think that the use of a lot of real people in the film is part of that. So Jonah Hill and Brad have so many great scenes. Uh, uh, They have great chemistry together. And I think it's also a great use of, uh, there's there's a couple instances in the film which I think uses Brad Pitt's persona quite well in the sense that 
he is this incredibly good-looking movie star. And I am sure everyone walking into working with him, and particularly some of either the non-actors or even actors who are newer on the newer side of their career, uh, they use it particularly well. And I think the Jonah Hill character is one of them. And I think the actress, the wonderful actress who plays his his 12-year-old daughter is another. We're going to talk about that. Uh, but here's a scene between Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill where uh, Jonah Hill now firmly ensconced within the Oakland A's, albeit on an island with Billy Bean, Brad Pitt's character, in terms of their commitment to the sabermetric approach, he's nonetheless starting to learn the ins and outs of the job of being basically the assistant general manager. And this is a great scene where, where, where Brad Pitt's character sort of wants him to get some experience that he doesn't yet have in his, uh, in his role as um, watch this shit. An assistant to Billy Bean. I want you to go on the road with the team. You don't go on the road with the team. So I want you to do it. Why don't you? I can't develop personal relationships with these guys. I gotta be able to trade them, send them down, sometimes cut them. Which is something you should learn to do, by the way. I would never have to cut a player unless you. Oh, come on. Come on what? Let's practice. No. Yeah, I'm a player, and you got to cut me from the roster. No. Go. What do you mean, no? No. Do it. This is stupid. Part of the job, man. Fine. Billy, please have a seat. I need to talk to you for a minute. Go on. You've been a huge part of this team. But sometimes you have to make decisions that are best for the team. I'm sure you can understand that. You're cutting me. I'm really sorry. I just bought a house here. Well. In Oakland. Well, uh, well. Well, it, well, that's all you got to say? My kid just started a new school. They made friends. That's, uh, well, you shouldn't pull them out in the middle of the school year. You, you should wait. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't have. I'm not going to do this. I don't think I think this is stupid. I'm not going to fire anybody. And this is dumb. They're professional ball players. Just be straight with them. No fluff, just facts. Pete, I got to let you go. Jack's office will handle the details. That's it. Really? What's great about this scene is in addition to being a really funny moment of comic relief between these two actors who have great chemistry together in this film, and in terms of giving Jonah Hill's character a little bit of a learning curve to go through in the way that Brad was talking about in that brief excerpt that I played earlier, he's learning the ropes. But it also gets at what I was just talking about, which is that beyond the numbers and the dollars and the statistics – these are real people engaged in this pursuit together. And the decisions that have to be made are often ruthless. And they don't have time. The decisions don't have room or time to consider, I just bought a house here. My kid is just enrolled in a new school. These are all the things that fall out from players that get cut. When we gleefully watch the HBO sports 
series Hard Knocks, which follows training camps in the NFL, the kind of iconic thing that the series has been known for are the cut scenes. These are the scenes where small cameras hidden in the offices of general managers of National Football League franchises call in players and and cut them from the roster, in some cases ending their dream. And pruriently, we enjoy watching that because these are real dramatic moments, right? Things are in the balance. People's lives are in the balance. This film never loses sight of that in a great way. And I think that the chemistry of Jonah Hill and Brad Pitt uh, is, is fantastic here. Another great piece of casting. I'm not going to say it's real life casting. It's not casting someone who's not in the business, but <laughs> there's a brilliant cameo in this film by the film director, Spike Jones. And one of the fascinating things about the portrayal that Brad gives here in the Billy Bean character is that in one of the original screenplays that I read, uh, the character is divorced, but he has a new girlfriend and the, and there are some interactions with the girlfriend that, uh, are cut out of this revised script that I believe was revamped by Adam Sorkin, uh, with Steve Zalian. And they stripped out kind of this, this girlfriend character and the scenes that Brad Pitt's character had with her, um, I think smartly. And what's left is this kind of fascinating existence of the Billy Bean character in A, what clearly is a house decorated by his ex-wife. Because I don't think there's any way that the actual character Billy Bean that we meet in this film would have like decorative plates and vases and things like that in his home. So it feels to me, and he never feels at home in the few scenes that take place in his actual home. Um, other than the scenes where he is, the scene where he's across the kitchen island from his daughter who he's making an ice cream sundae for. But the other scenes, he's always kind of, um, he's wearing his his windbreaker. He's sitting at a kitchen table. It's He's not at home in his own home in a way. I think these are these must be, pointed production design choices. And the other thing that's fascinating to me is for a character presented as divorced, he's still wearing his wedding ring in prominent scenes. So what does that tell us uh, about the character as portrayed by Brad Pitt? Like that's a choice. Everything in a film is a choice, right? So that could be as mundane as, yeah, Billy Bean, um, who, by the way, is a good-looking guy and was a good-looking guy. It's another thing that I think works in this film. Because sometimes, sometimes I get taken out of films because really good-looking Hollywood actors are supposed to be portraying either real people or, or regular working-class people. And it's just so unbelievable that it takes me out of the film. There was um, an otherwise pretty good Western. What's the one? It has uh, Chris Pine and it's a pretty good Western that I was nonetheless completely taken out of because Chris Pine is like supposed to be this, oh, hell or high water. That's what it is. That's a really good Western. Taylor Sheridan, who's the 
uh, impresario of the billion-dollar franchise of Yellowstone and its 35 attendant sequels. Hell or High Water is a pretty good, uh, pretty good film. But Chris Pine is just too damn good-looking to believably be the character that he's supposed to be. It's like one of those things where if he was in this milieu that he's set in, it's kind of like the first thing that everybody, everybody who the character encountered would comment on. It's kind of like, oh my God, like who is this God that walks among us? Like it's just bizarre for certain people who are so good looking that other people wouldn't comment on the fact that they're that good looking. Like Brad Pitt is that good looking. Paul Newman is that good looking. Like Ben Foster is more perfectly cast in hell or high water because he sort of really does embody one of these two brothers. But Chris Pine took me out of this otherwise kind of engaging neo-noir Western because he's just too damn good looking. Now with Brad Pitt, for some reason, I think because it's such a good marriage of actor and role for maybe some of the speculative reasons I mentioned, but also because the real Billy Bean is a very good looking guy. So it's not that out of place to have Brad Pitt playing this character because Billy Bean in the book leads a little bit more with this false bravado charm. There's a couple scenes in the book where he's calling another general manager's office and he has a recurring joke with the assistant who answers the phone and he says something like, Denise, who's the best looking GM in baseball? And she says, you are, of course, Billy. He goes, right again. Denise, who's the most charming general manager in baseball? You are, Billy. Right again. Like he's, he's, he's sending himself up, but he's also aware of it in a way that um, the Brad Pitt character doesn't really do that in the film. But it's part of, I think, why it works. Like it's not off-putting. And also because in sports, you have a lot of very good-looking people in sports. You know, these are some of the blessed people who are given uh, the Tom Brady mix of talent and looks, you know, which is part of why people hate a lot of players like that so vociferously, I believe, is sort of like, as as, uh, my friend Dan says, uh, when I always sort of pester him about how he could hate someone like Tom Brady so much who otherwise seems to do everything right in sports and in life generally. He says, it's too much. It's too much. (laughs) I say, what do you mean it's too much? Are you saying that if he was less good looking, you would find him a little bit more likable? He's like, absolutely. He can't handle the fact that both exist in this one shell. Well, I think that the part of Billy Bean lends itself to that particularly well with Brad. So anyway, the, the character's divorced. His ex-wife is played by Robin Wright Penn. And they have such a fascinating dynamic. Um, and reading in the book, you know, I think there's more stories of how the young Billy Bean got married very young. And as his minor league baseball career was falling apart, you know, maybe his his relationship was falling apart. There's kind of intimation that since he wasn't going to become what he was supposed to become, she chose a different path. Like she maybe left him or abandoned him in that way. I'm not really sure what the truth of the relationship is, but certainly in the movie, I think there's enough signposts and clues here where you feel that the Brad Pitt character is pissed off and the Robin Wright Penn character is more appeasing and is trying, but is also ensconced in this kind of pointedly ridiculous Los Angeles house that's overlooking the water and has uncomfortable, unsittable furniture 
And her new husband is played brilliantly by Spike Jones. You got to listen to his, <laughs> his picture perfect. So just listen to this scene here between Robin and Penn. Hey, Sharon. Hi, Billy. She ready? She's out with friends. This is great. When you watch the film, okay, he's dropping by her bullshit L.A. house where she lives with Alan, the brilliantly named Alan, played by Spike Jones. And as she comes and opens the door, he's expecting that his daughter is there and ready to go for his visitation time. But what Brad Pitt does as an actor is, as she opens the door and she says, hi, Billy, and he says, hi, Sharon, or does he even say hi, does he just say Sharon? And then he quickly gives her a once-over, top to bottom. And I think the way a divorced spouse always will. But she'll be back. Come in. Okay. Yes, yeah, right here. Hold on. Here you go. There, want, want to have a seat? This is Spike Jones yeah. as Alan. <laughs> and Brad's just looking around this living room like, what is this? You good, Billy? Yeah, good. How are you, Alan? Good. Really good. Things are peaceful around here. It's good to see you. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. <laughs> you know, I haven't got to see you since the playoffs, and I really wanted to say that New York was heartbreaking. I'm sure for you, too. And not many teams make it that far, and to watch you guys go that far and play that well was, was really accomplished, an accomplishment. Well, that's nice. How is the team shaping up? Team's good. Uh, rebuilding. See, in these scenes, again, I'm going to sing Brad's praises a lot in this episode. What's great is in scenes like this where he's with people who really don't understand, not through their own fault per se. It's just that he knows so much about this thing, this game of baseball, from both being a player who never panned out to being on the inside of a team that when people like Alan and his ex-wife who just know what they know from television or whatever, it's it's an unbridgeable gulf of understanding. And the character, he's he gives kind of like he was giving to his his owner. These very generalized, yep, team's good, all's good. Like none of that is true. It's completely a disaster. Uh, but he can't go there. There's no avenue to get into that conversation. And this is again such a smart acting choice, I think, on Brad Pitt's part. Uh, to portray it this way and play these lines this way. I yeah. read you lost uh, Giambani and Damon. Giambi. Yeah. Uh, Damon, Isringhausen. They're really, they're gone? Gone. Ah. Yesterday's news. It's terrible. No, but that is a tough situation. That's... You're going to be fine, though. You always figure something out. He's... Awkward, freighted silences are so well acted where by all she, three. Where was she? Down the street or? Oh, sorry, yeah. I, I just talked to her in her cell. She's coming up the hill. Okay. She's got a cell phone? Yeah. A 12-year-old? Yeah. Huh. For emergencies. <laughs> Big parenting decision. But I, I, it's something, you know, we, we, you know, we all should discuss, because if you have any objections, of course. Her mother and I will discuss it. 
Now, what's great in this scene is, again, kind of like with the general managers, the general manager and the owner scene, there are these moments, however stilted, however awkward, of the normal, everyday pleasantries slash small talk. But then inevitably, the veneer is pulled away and everyone is dealing with the reality of the situation. And the way that Robin Wright Penn changes in this scene at this moment is so brilliant because wordlessly, she is re-experiencing all of the things that were at issue in their marriage and or her decision to leave and maybe some of the guilt that she feels in sitting in this this. Angelino Palace of a, as uh, as Pacino, as Vincent Hanna would say in Heat of Justine's house, my wife's post dead bullshit tech blah blah house. Like that's kind of where this house is. And at this moment, where she and Alan have made a parenting decision that should have included Billy, and didn't, they got her a cell phone. And he kind of calls them out on it, but he's being polite, but he's also not letting it go. She changes. Her facial expression changes. She looks angrily at him. But thank you. Anything? And then <laughs> Spike Jones is brilliant. I mean, it's a great piece of casting. And um, it's just, again, part of what I think Brad gets to do in this film that he doesn't get to do in a lot of other things. So there's this fascinating kind of through line here of this divorce. And then later on, there's a phone call that he's not expecting uh, when the team is on, on, on track to possibly win a record-breaking 20th game in a row. Uh, she calls him in his truck, and he thinks it's Peter calling. He, he answers the phone by saying, Peter, don't, don't tell me the score. And she goes, Billy? And he's like, Sharon? And... It's freighted. These scenes between he and, and Robin Wright Penn, as few as they are, they're, they're freighted with the realness of this thing that occurred between them, which is tied to what Billy Bean is struggling with slash fueled by. And I think that's so well done. Uh, so Robin Wright Penn, you know, small, small little bit, but uh, her and Billy Bean, I mean, her and um, Spike Jones are so perfect. I mean, that's one of my favorite throwaway scenes. Then we come to, you know, my wife makes fun of me for loving this film um, because admittedly there is a strong B or C story here, which is the relationship between Billy Bean and his 12-year-old daughter, Casey, who is portrayed by a phenomenal young actor, Karis Dorsey, who again is so pitch perfect and how they found her, I do not know. But again, I think using a little of this, holy shit, I'm acting opposite Brad Pitt in a way works the same way it feels like it would work for child of divorced parents on uncertain ground with a father that they kind of idolize slash lionize slash don't know that well. And her scenes with Brad are so beautiful and realistically fraught with the concern and the worry and the bond of the parent and the child and and the truthfulness of the the divorce and the way that weighs on the the way these characters are portrayed is part of I think what I respond to 
as a child of divorce twice over. And these scenes are played brilliantly. And even something as kind of seemingly throwaway as this scene, which takes place in a guitar shop where he's, he's taking her to shop for a guitar. It's so fraught brilliantly with kind of their tentativeness with each other, their love for each other. And just the fact that they don't spend a lot of time with each other um, because of his job, because of his path, because of their parents' divorce. Like, it's fraught with all these things. She's looking at guitars. Is that good or bad? Butterflies. They're okay. (laughs) That one's pretty. I like the red. Should we try? Mm. No. Oh, I like this one. Yeah. Look how it's red. It's beautiful. Let's try it out. Just right here. You go over there. The way they do this scene, I want you to watch when you watch it. They're both uncomfortable. And she wants to perform for her father, but she's also bashful about performing in the store. He's also completely on terra infirma both with his own daughter to some degree, but also like being in the confine of a music store and not knowing. He does this great little thing right here where he's like, he's the one saying to her, like, can you play a little bit for me? And she's like, right here. And he kind of looks around uncomfortably and he doesn't know if they should play there or they should play somewhere else. And it's again, it's a directorial choice to show without saying the discomfort. And then she plays this song. She casts him a quick side look. And just that one, there's one cutaway to Brad. And his face, his eyes, the love that he feels. He communicates all of this physically without having to say anything. And her perfectly pitched performance opposite him is one of the wonderful heartbeats of the film. Um, and it, it presents the Billy Bean character in a completely different way than we see him in every other scene in the movie. And it, 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 I think what's cool about it is in doing so, it gives us a more complete picture of this person that a lesser film would just have him be this blustering two dimensional character driven by what happened to him in the game. But it's more than that. And these scenes with the daughter, there's four of them, I think, they are all magnificent. And they're just, yes, it is part of why I love the movie because I have an 11-year-old daughter, soon to be 12. Uh, Fortunately, I'm not divorced and I don't have to have the degree of kind of awkward uncertainty of whether the butterflies are a good or a bad thing. That's a great little touch in the script and in the performances because an everyday parent, you kind of know what your kids are or aren't into in a way that he doesn't. He has to ask her. And the scene foreshadows the film's brilliant ending. So I can't say enough about Karis Dorsey, who is a phenomenal actor at this age. And there's a brilliant scene later where they're making ice cream sundaes. Dad, there's... There's no way you're gonna lose your job, right? What? Well, I don't know. I'm just wondering. Where'd you hear that? Well, I go on the internet sometimes and Well, don't do that. Don't don't go on the internet. 
watch TV or read newspapers or talk to people. I don't talk to people. I just read stuff. Honey, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Really, you don't have to worry. But if I... you lose your job, will you have to move away? Honey, I'm not going to lose my job. You don't have to worry. Hey, there's no problem. Of course, in the brilliant perceptive wisdom of 12-year-olds, there is a problem. She is accurately diagnosing the problem. He is on the verge of losing his job. And if he does lose his job, he will be subject to the whims and the vagaries of the profession. And he may have to move to whatever team is willing to hire him, if any. And Karis Dorsey is, I think, just the right age as an actor with just the right level of experience here to allow the, I'm playing a scene opposite Brad Pitt, to register on her face as part of the kind of adulation, the adoration that the daughter feels for the father. Uh, it really works in in kind of freighting that, uh, her discomfort with him, her desire to please him. Um, her, her worry, you know, that she can articulate, uh, and he, you know, fascinating, like, yes, that's what a parent has to do. A parent has to reassure the child. A parent has to shelter off the child from some of the realities that do perhaps threaten their day-to-day -day life together. And that is something that the film really brilliantly captures and Karis Dorsey, perfectly cast as this character, is incredible. Um, now, Philip Seymour Hoffman. You know, this is not one of the movies that gets referenced a lot uh, when you talk about the work and the career of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Brilliant brilliant actor, probably the best actor of his generation, um, who is one of the actors who can disappear so thoroughly into these roles uh, that it can sometimes take a little work to truly appreciate how brilliant he is because he's so good. And you would not think of Philip Seymour Hoffman as a baseball lifer as Art Howe, the manager of the Oakland A's, is in real life, a baseball lifer. In the shorthand of the film, he's used as the chief antagonist to what Billy Bean and um, what Billy Bean's trying to do with the sabermetric approach, even though in real life he wasn't quite as opposed to what was going on. Um, but having an actor of the caliber of Philip Seymour Hoffman, who of course was in Bennett Miller's previous film, Capote. And Bennett Miller tells the story. He says, you know, Philip called and said, have you cast the role of Art Howe yet? And Bennett Miller said, well, no. And Philip Seymour Hoffman said, well, I'd be interested in doing that. And Bennett Miller says, you know, when Phil says he's interested in doing something, you take it seriously. I think kind of acknowledging that he himself wouldn't have thought of Philip Seymour Hoffman to play a baseball lifer. Yet his embodiment is so good here. I should have made you a bigger part of the conversation from day one. That way it'd be clear what we're trying to do here. That was my mistake. 
hard, and I take responsibility for that. What are you trying to say? I'm saying it doesn't matter what moves I make if you don't play the team the way they're designed to be played. Billy? You're out of your depth. Why not Hatterberg at first? Because he can't play first. How do you know? Not my first baseball game. Art. Scott Hatterberg can't hit Hits his on defense. Still keeps us in the plus column. We only need to be 7 over 500. What? Anything else? Yeah, I would have rather seen Bradford in the end than Magnante. Bradford's a righty. I don't care about righty-lefty. I do. Could this be about your contract? No. This is about you doing your job and me doing mine. Mine's being being left alone to manage this team you assembled for me. I didn't assemble it for you, Art. No shit. <laughs> That's a great button on the scene. No shit. Uh, I think the movie actually is kinder to Art Howe than I think Art Howe thought the film was. And maybe it's just close watching it a few times. I think if you watch it one time, yes, you could think like, oh, this stick in the mud Art Howe doesn't get with the program. But I actually think the film shows him coming around in a way that is a little kinder to the character than perhaps the fictionalized version necessarily is. This is part of the fascinating thing about movies, of course, based on real people is you know, you can't really do the quote-unquote truth per se. You have to sort of compact things because we only have, what, you know, an hour and 30 minutes here to do the film. And so Art Howe has to be kind of reduced to the embodiment of all the opprobrium that was thrown at Billy Bean's uh, attempt to reshape the game as the most prominent general manager at the time using this approach. And the scenes with, with Philip Seymour Hoffman um, and, and Billy have this great kind of sense of escalation um, as they kind of continue to encounter each other. And the Art Howe character doesn't do with... Billy Bean throwing his desk. So when they meet here in this dugout, where, by the way, general managers don't typically go. Want Diane Wright? Justice DHing, Pena on the bench, Hatterberg at first, and anyone but Mags first out of the pen. You want Pena on the bench? That's right. So you can play Hattie. Pena is not only the best first baseman on the roster, he's the only first baseman Listen on the roster. Me. Hattie gets on base. More than Pena. In fact, 20% more. And his fielding? His fielding does not matter. Well, I've heard enough of this conversation. Have you? And I, uh, I disagree with you. Plain and simple. Moreover, I'm playing my team in a way that I can explain in job interviews next winter. Okay? And then here the players start coming in, so they have to cut this conversation off. Uh, great Philip Seymour Hoffman scene. So many cool things going on in there. And also for Brad, again, he gets to kind of take the character to a different place. He's, he's far more free of any of the artifice with which his character tends to enter into most of the other scenes. 
at this point, he's gone three rounds with Art Howe, and he's losing his patience for the ability to communicate to him exactly what he should be doing. And it's fascinating. Now, another cool, well, I guess not so cool, but one thing I was thinking of, you know, there's so much made in the film over how Peter Brandt, the Paul D. Podesta character, and Billy Bean are focusing on undervalued players. And, you know, the rest of conventional thinking in baseball doesn't think the Chad Bradfords, the Scott Hatterbergs of the world are, have value because they either don't look the part or they have obvious injury flaws. And these guys are the only guys who are aware of these players' true value. And they can acquire them for a third or less than what a player who is valued by the system would cost. But it occurred to me in watching the film a couple times, you know, there's still a fucked up part of the whole system, which is they're taking advantage of the players. Like, it's not as if they're saying, hey, Chad Bradford should be considered one of the best and most reliable relief pitchers in baseball. Let's pay him according to his value. No, no, no. They're, they're willing participants in a system that admittedly they didn't set up, but the system says Chad Bradford should only be paid $237,000, not $3 million. But it's not as if they go out of their way to reward the guy for what they know his true value to be. They are still taking advantage of the players. I think that's an interesting kind of unexplored aspect of this. Now, of course, you can't change the system. Um, and the system would change, has changed. You know, as the John Henry character brilliantly portrayed by the actor Arliss Howard says later, you know, the first guy through the door always gets bloodied. And to some extent, Billy Bean, but really Sandy Alderson were the first guys through this door and did get bloodied. But it's an interesting subtext to the film, I think, that, you know, it's not as if they're trying to do right by these players, although these are some, in some cases, players that would not have continued their Major League Baseball careers if not for the interest of Billy Bean and the A's. However, it is part of, I think, something that the film doesn't super get into. Uh, Arliss Howard playing John Henry is one of the great uh, additional cameos here. This whole sequence, they had one day to film in Boston, uh, and they had to film this sequence of, um, of Billy Bean going and meeting with John Henry, who was a non-traditional baseball owner. And he's very brilliantly embodied by Arliss Howard. Due respect to the Coliseum, but this is a ballpark. Yes, it is. We're going to have some lunch in a little bit. Why don't I have some coffee sent up? Denise. Now, what's so funny about this to me is Denise, she brings over these little <laughs> bullshit you, coffee cups. This is a funny exchange. You know, it's her birthday, and I need to get her a present, but she's usually the one that does that for me. So, do you have any ideas? Uh, scarf. You mean like wool? No, I meant uh, what women wear with, uh, you know, decorative. Uh, oh, uh, and w where would I get something like that? John, no disrespect. I just lost in five for the second year in a row. Get her a bowling ball for all I care. It's such a great little sort of uh, duet here between these two. 
And I think Arliss Howard does a great job here traipsing a very thin line between kind of saying that the John Henrys of the world, these tech billionaires are kind of full of shit and don't really know it and are used to a sort of swaggering sense of themselves and also accurately portraying someone who is willing to think differently within the game. And this little speech that he gives here is a great encapsulation of a middle ground that the film up to this point hasn't really addressed. Like we've seen very vividly the entrenched uh, classic baseball thinking in the embodiment of Art Howe and the scouts and the challenges and the fights that they have with the Billy Bean character. And we've seen the Billy Bean side and the Paul Brandt side, and we've seen what they see in these players and that they're right about that. But what we haven't seen is someone else in a position of power and authority within the game embrace what Billy is trying to do. And that's what this scene is here to do. Because it's the Red Sox. Because I believe science might offer an answer to the curse of the Bambino. <laughs> because I hear you hired Bill James. Yeah. You know, why someone took so long to hire that guy is beyond me. Well, baseball hates him. Well, baseball, baseball can hate him, you know. One of the great things about money is it, it buys a lot of things one of which is the luxury to, to disregard what baseball likes, doesn't like, what baseball thinks, doesn't think. <laughs> uh, sounds nice. Well, I was grateful for the call. You were grateful? Yeah. For 41 million, you built a playoff team. You lost Damon, Giambi, Isringhausen, Pena. And you won more games without them than you did with them. You won the exact same number of games that the Yankees won, but the Yankees spent $1.4 million per win, and you paid 260000 I know you're taking it in the teeth out there, but the first guy through the wall, he always gets bloody. Always. This is threatening, not just a way of doing business, but, it's, but in their minds, it's threatening the game. But really, what it's threatening is their livelihood. It's threatening their jobs. It's threatening the way that they do things. And every time that happens, whether it's a government or a way of doing business or whatever it is, the people who are holding the reins, have their hands on the switch, they go batshit crazy. And this is the, this is the truest distillation of, I think, what the what the film is about for the director, Bennett Miller, as, as I've read him and seen him say, is that he's attracted to this concept of people engaged in the challenge of the status quo and whether you can truly ever be successful in that or not. And these sections all build um, to such a, a great cumulative power. And I wanted to also single out what I think is great about the pure baseball section. There's a, there's a section... Um, in, in about a minute, about an hour and a half into the film where it's called the streak. And this is where the, the team is going to go on a run of potentially winning a record-breaking 20 games in a row. And this is a, a bravura section of filmmaking that, um, that really brilliantly encapsulates the power of sports, even if you're not a sports fan. Because its use of broadcast voices 
and archival footage, actual telecast, broadcast telecast footage. There's a power and electricity to the voices and to the, to the skilled broadcasters talking about these historic moments, which, of course, they are professional broadcasters in baseball. So they understand the historic import, even if, even if you don't as a viewer. And this is also where the brilliant score by the composer Michael Dana comes in, which is, I think this is one of the most brilliant film scores ever done. And... It's used to brilliant effect in this uh, section. And the first time we kind of hear this theme, it is introduced uh, in, you know, this montage where uh, it's finally, this is like the, it's finally starting to work montage for the team. This theme is just so good. Jason takes it, goes to second for the only out. And the A's gonna run. Jermaine Die homers again, his second in two games. And the A's are still hanging in. We'll get you some scores here in a moment here. The A's pull within two of the Angels for the wild card chase. The Reds have now dropped five in a row as Oakland beats them in the beginning of this three-game series, five to three. Tejada walks. Ball four. Ball four, Hatterberg walks. What is happening in Oakland? The A's have won seven in a row. A lot of excitement. What a winning streak. But how about the calming influence of Art Howe? There's kind of a funny punctuation where Art Howe gets the credit, even though we've seen him thwarting the attempt to have all this stuff work, which is kind of a funny moment. But wow, Michael Dana's theme there is so brilliant. And and it comes back in uh, in this streak portion about 10 minutes later where you have the culmination. The slingshot, the A's into first in the AL West. It's a nice This team was written off. How do you explain otherwise? How do you explain otherwise some of the victories that they've come up with? The Oakland A's are going to win 16 consecutive games. This is the longest win streak in baseball, folks, in 25 years. The A's have won 16 in a row. We're going to 20. Now, what's incredible about this sequence here is, I think, they, they use all of this archival footage so well, and they're giving you information, and they're, they're giving you the voice of the fan, which is what this is here. What's occurring right now is bigger than a whole bunch of superstitions going on. They have to do the same things. And then you have some of this, some of the actual actors who are pitching baseball players here. Page one of the New York Times today. They are the story in sports in this entire country. Here it is. Swing and a miss. Struck him out. Number 17. And it uses this footage so brilliantly. It is so brilliantly chosen. I read a thing where Bennett Miller said, you know, they had so many hours of this archival footage. Wow. The choices made are spectacular. And the, the, the type of filmmaking that he's putting together here, which cuts back and forth very seamlessly from the archival footage, has this laid over uh, voice track from, from actual game announcing uh, commentary. And that's intercut with actual recreation footage using the actors that we know are portraying the baseball players. And there's something fascinating about the, the one step back 
nature of using broadcast game footage that to me is somehow it's interesting, but I don't know why it's not like we're watching, uh, footage of the game in some way, even though that's exactly what we're watching. There's, there's a way in which using the broadcast in a way that feels a little, I don't know if it's treated or if it's just 2011 technology. So it, it feels like you're watching television as opposed to watching footage. Like the, the, the resolution nowadays of sports broadcasts would render this less archivally interesting and appealing in that way that kind of grainy footage is. There's something about the way they use the baseball footage of the actual game telecasts here, which contributes the sense of we're watching something unfold here that's historic and fascinating and interesting. And I think it does that whether you're following the game or interested in it or not. And the, um, the other character I wanted to mention is Chris Pratt who is currently right now starring in the two most likely highest grossing films of the year in Guardians of the Galaxy and the Super Mario Brothers movie where he does the voice of Mario. But here we are just 12 years ago and he's playing a very small supporting role um, in this film. And at the time he was, I think, really only known for uh, Parks and Rec like playing the schlumpy, overweight character. And this brilliant scene introducing his uh, character here. He's, he's watching TV, lost in his own thoughts, but he's not present. And his wife is doing the bills in another room and kind of looking worriedly at him. So much is communicated here about a baseball marriage and a career on the downslope. Hello? Scott. Yes? It's Billy Bean of the Oakland A's. Yes. Can we talk? Uh, yeah. You want to let us in? Pardon me? We're out front. <laughs> what? On the curb. Uh, yeah, yeah. Honey? <laughs> now, if you know me, one of my favorite forms of acting is one-sided phone call acting. I, I just can't get enough of it. I think that's the real mark of an actor. And this scene, which has Brad as the Billy Bean character and uh, the Ron Washington character is so good. Um, I have to get the name of this, this actor because he is great. He's one of the real uh, subtle casting joys of the movie. His name is Brent Jennings. He plays Ron Washington, Wash as he's known, who uh, is a baseball legend. He's so brilliantly used in this scene uh, where the two of them are at Scott Hatterberg's house, whose career is over. He has a nerve injury in his elbow. He's a catcher and he can't throw the ball from behind home plate back to the pitcher or to first place base anymore. And his career is essentially over, except for the fact that Billy Bean and the Paul D. Podesta character understand his his value and his ability to get on base, regardless of what he's able to do defensively. So they're here in this scene to try to convince him. Well, not even convince him because they're the only ones offering him a job. <clears throat> How's the elbow, Scott? You know it's good. It's really good. It's great. Uh, 
I can't throw the ball at yeah. all. You're throwing your last ball from behind home plate, is what I'd say. Sure. Now, what's so great about that little, well, there is a truism contained in that one little gesture from Chris Pratt. Well, it's the denial that all you know great athletes have to have, right? They're the last to know. Uh, he knows it's over, but he can't allow himself to accept that it's over. And that little, well, that, that's the tell there. That's just one of the things the film gets so abundantly right in its portrayal of these people. Good news is we want you at first. We want you to play first base. For the- and again, I think it's I think it's ADR or Foley. That little uh, that feels laid over the scene. I don't know if he really did it in real time, but it, again, it's so specific to what the hell are you guys talking about? Why would you want me to play first base? Let alone he's going to be taking the place of Jason Giambi, who at the time was like you know the heaviest slugging first baseman in baseball. He's got to step into those shoes. Oakland A's. Okay, well. I've only ever played catcher. Scott, you're not a catcher anymore. If you were, our call wouldn't have been the only one you got when your contract expired. Yeah, hey, listen, no, I I appreciate it. You're welcome. But the thing the thing is, is uh you don't know how to play first base. Scott? That's right. It's not that hard, Scott. Tell him, Wash. It's incredibly hard. Hey, anything worth doing is. And we're gonna teach you. Wait a minute here. I mean, what, what about uh, you? Jason's gone, Scott. Giambi, you want me to take Giambi's spot at first base? Yeah. What about the fans? Yeah, maybe I can teach one of them. The fans don't. Good one. Fans don't run my ball club. <laughs> Honey, what are you doing awake? Here's Sweetheart, a little you? fascinating character thing with Billy Bean, too. My daughter. You got kids? Uh, yeah, daughter. Scott? This is a contract to play ball for the Oakland A's. Copy's been sent over to your agent. Discuss with your wife. Let us know. I think I'm so fascinated with why he chose to play that scene where Scott's saying, do you have kids? And he's like, yeah, a daughter. It's like it's not alive or present for the character. Uh, And maybe in that moment it's not because he's trying to do this thing that he's trying to do, which is build his team the way he knows it needs to be built. But it's such a fascinating, is it a true-to-life thing where – Billy Bean is a compartmentalizer, and in this mode, he's not really looking to make an actual connection. Maybe now that I'm talking about it, it's connected to something that he said earlier, which is, I can't afford to build personal relationships with these guys uh, because he has to cut them. He has to trade them. He has to demote them. He has to end their dream in some cases. All these things that happen to him as a player. I think one of the fascinating things about Brad's performance here is that's all contained in his character actions what happened to him, what people did to him, the the bullshit that the scouts are spewing in the scene where they uh, come and try to sign uh, the young Billy Bean character uh, when he's sort of reminiscing about that part of his experience in baseball is so well indicated um, by the, again, real life scouts that uh, are used to portray these two guys selling him and his family. What is it that makes him special? Very rare do you come upon a young man like Billy who can run, who can field, who can throw, who can hit, and who can hit with power. Those five tools 
you don't see that very often. Most of the youngsters we, that we, we have an interest in have one or two tools, and we're hoping to develop an extra one. Your son has five. I mean, we're, we're looking at a guy that's a potential superstar for us in New York if the time is right now to get him started. We're prepared to make a sizable financial commitment. The Mets are gonna stand behind Billy because we expect him to be our big league center fielder. This check here represents the offer that, uh, that the New York Mets would be making to Billy. You do know that he's been accepted to Stanford on a full scholarship. I do. So he can do both. Unfortunately, he can't do Stanford and professional baseball. He would have to pick one or the other. If he wants to be a center fielder for the New York Mets, if he wants to be a baseball player, he really needs to accept this as life's first occupation, really, first career. We're all told at some point in time, Billy, that we can no longer play the children's game. We just don't, don't know when that's gonna be. Some of us are told at 18, some of us are told at 40, but we're all told. But this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We want you badly, and we think that this amount of money expresses that desire. It's an amazing scene. And it's again, using these real people, I think. I think both of these guys are real, actual baseball scouts who did this for a living. And it's, I guess, this adaptation of what Soderbergh had intended, uh, but it, it's so brilliantly effective because you you couldn't have actors do this dialogue in a way that's as believable as the the way these two guys both look and the way they talk. You know, they both mean it and they're just trying to accomplish something that that they need to do, which is sign this kid. Because you know what? They're not going to be there every step of the way. After they sign him, their job is done. You know, he's going to be handed off to someone else who's supposedly in charge of the care of this player, but there is no care. And this sequence is so important because it is the fuel which drives uh, the Billy Bean character throughout the film, and we keep cutting back and forth there to uh, some of the some of the times where Billy is 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 thinking about these these moments. So anyway, Chris Pratt is great. The cinematography is great. Wally Pfister did a great job, and I'll end by going to this scene which broke my heart the first time I ever saw it. Mrs. Billy has accepted the job with the Boston Red Sox. And he's putting a DVD into his truck. We had the scene earlier where his daughter is musically talented, has the guitar. This uh, is, hey, Dad, this is the song I told you I'd record. Please don't show it to anyone else. Um, let me know if you change your mind and stay in California. If not, you're a really great dad. <laughs> that alone is such a great little moment. If not, you were a really great dad. <laughs> There's a little laugh at the end. She knows this is the way that 11 and 12-year-olds communicate, right? It's the thing they're most afraid of. It's not actually true. He's still her dad, even if he does have to move. But for her, it feels like it's over. And... I think they so brilliantly use the reality of this type of communication in the film. And this ending scene is such a non-baseball movie scene. The way it's filmed, it's extremely simple. The camera's on the other side of the truck, filming into the car cab, the truck cab. 
and we see Brad and he's reactive. He's listening to this CD. I'm just a little bit caught in the middle. Life is a maze and love is a riddle. I don't know where to go. Can't do it alone. I've tried and I don't know why. I'm just a little girl lost in the moment. I'm so scared, but I don't show it. I can't figure it out. It's hanging me down. I know I've got to let it go. Just enjoy the show, slow it down, make it stop, or else my heart is going to pop. Cause it's too much, yeah, it's a lot to be something I'm not. I'm full out of love, and I just can't get enough. I'm just a little bit caught in the middle. And- here we're in an extreme close-up of Brad's face, and his eyes are filled with watered-up tears. And then on the screen we have the type that says that he he then turned down the Red Sox offer of $12,500,000 to become the general manager, to stay in Oakland, where he still is today. And that two years later, the Red Sox won their first World Series since 1918 embracing the philosophy championed in Oakland by Billy Bean. Now, of course, this song has a couple dual meanings because as we know from Bull Durham, uh, being in professional baseball is called being in the show. And that's referenced in the this film here. This song is, is, is about what she hopes uh, Billy Bean could embrace, just... Just enjoy the show. He doesn't enjoy this. That's part of the the brilliant upending of baseball or sports movie tropes. And in a way, this thing that I mentioned before, which is, well, aren't they exploiting these players just like the system is under-exploiting these players? But when I watched it this last time last night, on the one hand, it seems insane to turn down $12.5 million dollars particularly because now we know the Red Sox would go on to win the World Series in 2004 using these philosophies. But if in the end he takes that money from the system, the genius of the screenplay and of the approach here is that that would simply start the cycle all over again of the system improperly valuing something. And there's a scene when he comes back from Boston where the Peter Brand character says that. He says, the money says what it says to any player who gets big money, that they deserve it. But Billy knows from his experience, he didn't deserve the big money he got. And he kind of knows he'd be a hypocrite if he took the $12.5 million because that's against his philosophy, even though, in hindsight, it would seem to have given him a pathway towards the thing he wants more than anything else, which is to win the World Series. But He wants to win it there. And if Billy Bean is ever able to win a World Series with the Oakland A's, that will be an incredible story that that bleeds over into everyday life. This will all come back again as something to be aware of and to celebrate. So I've almost spent two hours talking about Moneyball, but 
this was an episode I wasn't going to censor myself on because I do think it really is a perfect film. I think it it absolutely does everything it set out to do. It contains remarkable, enjoyable performances. It has humor. It has heart. It has information. And it's about an improbable story that I think transcends the milieu of the sports film, the baseball film. And to date, I think it's Brad Pitt's greatest film performance. Uh, he was nominated. Other aspects of the film were nominated. I think it got five nominations, but it didn't win any. And that is a crime. In fact, I'm going to close just with talk about organizations that improperly value <laughs> players. It was nominated for Best Picture. And it lost to the artist. Exactly. Because what you just said was, what? The artist? Yeah, that's the film that starred Jean Dujardin that like cleaned up at the Oscars. Um, have you thought of the artist since 2011? Here are the films that were also nominated for Best Picture. The Artist, The Descendants, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, The Help, Hugo, the Martin Scorsese movie, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, Tree of Life, and War Horse. Now, of all those films, I'm going to say unequivocally, without any question whatsoever, Moneyball is the best of those films and is the only one that remains really worth watching at this late date. Best actor, Jean Dujardin, won for The Artist. Damien Bashir was nominated, George Clooney for The Descendants, Gary Oldman, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, great performance, Brad Pitt, Moneyball. Again, of those, Brad Pitt is far the more impressive performance. Joni Hill was nominated for Best Supporting Actor alongside Kenneth Branagh, My Weekend with Marilyn. You remember that, right? Nick Nolte in Warrior, good movie, good Nick Nolte performance, not Oscar-worthy. Max von, Max von Sydow, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and Christopher Plummer, who won for Beginners. Exactly. I don't remember it either. Uh, Joan Hill should have won. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, which it also should have won. And if it wasn't nominated for Score, I'm going to go on a tear. It wasn't nominated for Best Original Score, which is a total crime. It's got brilliant music, brilliant, brilliant film music. Uh, it was nominated for Best Sound Mixing. It wasn't nominated for Cinematography or Art Direction. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, the film did okay. Uh, it, made, it made some money. It did good business. It wasn't a blockbuster, but it didn't win any of these award, awards that I think it should have won. So anyway, that's my take on Moneyball. I hope you will see it. If you haven't seen it, I hope I haven't ruined it for you. If you haven't, if you have seen it, take a trip down memory lane and watch it again. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And I will be back shortly with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Thank you so much for joining me as ever. 